When we use terms like recession or depression in terms of the economy of the modern world, we probably think those are relatively new inventions. In reality, however, Jerusalem was suffering from a severe uh, recession or maybe even depression in the years 41 through 54 A.D. Uh, during the reign of Claudius. Indeed, the times were so severe that they had begun to suffer a terrific famine. And when Paul and the other missionaries came to Jerusalem, those who were struggling to keep the church alive and well in that place, asked them to remember the poor in Jerusalem as they made their journeys among the churches. Which very thing, the Bible tells us, Paul was pleased to do. Thereafter, we find the mention of that particular ministry which they were carrying on in Jerusalem in several of the books which Paul wrote. We know that they responded to the needs of the poor in a magnificent way in the city of Antioch where the Christians were first called Christian. We know that the people in Macedonia, more especially the Christians at Philippi, had also responded to that appeal for the poor in Jerusalem. And now Paul comes to the city of Corinth, a city he has already visited, and some 12 months earlier they had begun talking about that offering, and Paul, when writing his second letter to the church at Corinth, begins to speak of the offering once more in the first part of that eighth chapter, and dedicates no less than two entire chapters to the importance of that offering. The eighth and ninth chapters are given over to it. It is not only interesting, but instructive. Being a part of the Holy Scriptures, it is instructive to Christians in all ages to understand how Paul goes about underwriting these ministries, these programs, as he appeals to the pocketbooks of the Christians. He begins by citing a wonderful example. He lifts up the Philippians. Oh, how Paul loved that little church. One wonders how he came to love them so much, they beat him and put him in jail the first time he visited them. But Paul loved that little church. It was the only church he would let support him in his missionary travels. Paul, telling those Corinthians about uh, Philippi, waxed eloquent about their generosity and their love. He said those Philippians are under a, a severe testing of their own. Not only are they poor, they were very, very poor in Philippi, but they suffer ill treatment uh, from the Romans who run that city. There is an arena there, and, uh, and the Christians are oftentimes the brunt of their games and worse. And yet, he said, in spite of their affliction, they begged me for the favor of participating in that offering. He said they not only gave of their means, he said they gave beyond their means to this offering. 
Now, it's a wonderful thing to be able to look around and see the example of others. God has always used that to inspire His people. I have never been in a situation where I did not know other Christians whose generosity inspired me. And now and again, God even uses us to inspire others. I've been invited this fall, for instance, to go out to Tulsa to preach at the First Methodist Church there. Some of you know that church very well and have only recently transferred from that membership to our membership. I'm going out there to preach at that church because they're in a downtown situation and they're choked for want of space. And they heard of, of your courage and your generosity in purchasing an entire block in the middle of the same economic recession that they're suffering in Tulsa. And the people said, we want to hear more about that. We want to hear about their courage. We want to hear about their determination. And we want to be inspired by it. So I have the privilege of sharing with them your courage and your generosity that it might be an example to inspire them. Paul was using that same technique as he spoke to the Corinthians about the Philippian Christians. And then he goes deeper. He tells them the key to that generosity when he says those Philippians who have given so much, oh, it wouldn't be so much as we would measure it, it would really be very little. But proportionately speaking, it was so much, and that's the only way God ever measures is proportionately. Paul said, these who have given so much have done so because they have first given themselves to the Lord. After someone gives oneself to the Lord, giving to the Lord's work becomes a very natural thing to do. And then he went on to spell out the motive behind the Philippians giving, behind the Corinthian giving, and behind all Christians giving. He said in that ninth verse, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how though he was rich, he was willing to become poor, that you and I might become rich or have all things in him. In other words, Paul was putting it, their giving on the highest possible level. He wanted not only the gift, but the motive itself to be pure. Some years ago, I received a book. I'll bet you've read it too. It's called Why People Give. And it has all kinds of motives to which someone can appeal and, and, and get people to give. And, and many times the motive uh, appeals to a selfish part of ourselves. If we'll, if we'll give $10, we'll get 100 back. If we'll do this, we'll get something else back. And, and, and certainly Paul, the student of human nature that he was, understood a great deal about human motivation, but he never allowed himself to appeal to an unworthy motive. He would have believed in that old dictum, you don't get golden results from leaden motives. Paul linked it 
to the grace of God. To a God who, who left his throne in glory and counted it but lost to come that we might be saved. To a God who set his glory aside, the only begotten Son of God, to be born in a smelly stable, to take upon himself the role and the function of a servant, washing the dusty, dirty feet of his disciples and being led through his obedience to the cross itself. He linked our giving to him. We give because God gave. And until we are linked up with his grace, we can never expect to have that wealth of liberality. We can never expect to have that joy of overflowing. We can never expect to be that, that cheerful giver. There is that item of grace that comes when someone has tasted of the good things of God. I believe Paul would agree that there is about the natural person, the ungenerated person, a resistance to giving up anything that, quote, belongs to them. There is something that begins in the crib of, of holding on to that which is ours. I remember one of our children having one of those blankets that uh, a, ba a baby will hold and suck its thumb at the same time. And you know, just before they start to school, you begin to believe that maybe they ought to give up that blanket. Well, it wasn't really that long, it just seemed that long. I've forgotten how old that particular child was, but, but we talked with our pediatrician and, and he helped us come up with a technique. He said, maybe if you could uh, uh, appeal to, to his um, generosity and, and maybe share that blanket with a, a younger child. And so we talked to this particular child about sharing the blanket with a newborn baby in our community a little baby by the name of Frank. And it was a happy idea at noon that day. And we got all excited and made a big deal about taking that old shabby, worn, ragged blanket and giving it as a gift to baby Frank. But you know the rest of the story. Long about bedtime, there went up a great howl. Wanted to go to baby Frank's. Get my blanket back. My blanket. Blanket doesn't belong to baby Frank. It's mine. There is that quality. It, it, it comes from the crib and we struggle with it all of our lives. It takes, a, it takes a supernatural work of grace within us to come out where those Philippians did. Paul says, those folk begged me. Did you hear that? They begged me for the favor of letting them be a part of that offering. That's grace, my friends. We cannot expect a Christian virtue unless there is a Christian experience. Christian experience precedes Christian virtues. It is naive to expect people who have not yet met Jesus Christ to behave like Christians. One, Paul says, must precede the other. Jesus, the supreme teacher and savior, asked that Pharisee, 
Who will love a man the most? One who has been forgiven five dollars or one who has been forgiven fifty thousand dollars? And the Pharisee said, I, I suppose the one who has been forgiven most. And Jesus said, You're right. The one who has been forgiven little loves little, but the one who is forgiven most, uh, much loves much. Chesterton said it so very well. He said, It is the highest and holiest paradox that the man who knows he is in debt is always trying to pay that debt, knowing he never can. However, he is always casting things into that bottomless pit of unfathomable thanks. The bottomless pit of unfathomable thanks. That's the way it is with a Christian. God has given His only Son, Jesus Christ. We know we are debtors. And we beg for the favor of expressing our gratitude to the one who has done so much for us. And then Paul goes on to say it's based on the Christian's understanding of property. For when he refers to the fact that, that some had, uh, that all had plenty there in the wilderness, he's referring to the Exodus experience when God sent down manna from heaven. This is a reference to the fact that God has given us everything we have. We don't automatically know that. That takes a little bit of learning. That takes some teaching. And many of us who tithe learn that from godly parents and Sunday school teachers who taught us that God is the owner of all and we are the tenants. I remember how my parents told me what I was to give when I was a boy. Just flat out told me, if you can imagine the audacity of that. They knew how much I had, and so they said, this is how much you give to the church. And I remember when I'd put it in the plate, I'd, I'd want to chase after the usher and take it back. There wasn't any blessing in that for me. I, I wasn't a cheerful giver. I was a grudging giver. I, I did it because I had to. But they were even then trying to teach me that God is the owner. We don't just automatically come to that. A friend of mine shared just the other day how when he came to the church years ago, he made a commitment of $100. Well, like a lot of us, he'd given $100 to his college, his alma mater, and they made him a member of the Century Club. Uh, gave him one of those stickers to put in the back of his car and everything. That was a, a big deal to write a $100 check to your college. And so uh, to be a century member of the church uh, was a pretty good thing too. That's almost $2 a week. It sometimes uh, takes a shock for us to come to the realization of the incongruity of, of, of spending uh, 50 or $100 on a night of entertainment and then still putting in that dollar bill on Sunday morning. Uh, some people haven't reviewed their giving for 40 years. And they're still giving the same thing their grandparents gave and their income may have tripled and quadrupled, but, but 
Though movies cost $5, the giving to the church can easily remain the same. What Paul is talking about is what Jesus illustrated in his parable of the vineyard. Jesus said the, the master prepared a vineyard. He, he, he put a hedge around it. He, he put a watchtower in the center. He put a wine press in it. He got everything ready and then gave it over to the tenants. God is the owner. You and I are the tenants. We were set down in the middle of a beautiful garden. And Jesus said, after a time, when it was the right time, when it was the harvest time, God sent his servants to ask for that which was his, that portion he had requested. I think it's significant that God always asks at the right time. Paul makes it clear in this passage that God is not unreasonable. God does not ask for what someone does not have. God asks for a portion of that which we have. God is not unreasonable. And if someone tries to make out that the church of Jesus Christ is unreasonable in what it's asking, I think oftentimes that's a cover-up for some other problems. Not our God and not His servant, the church, ever ask for that which is unreasonable. At the right time, when there's a harvest... In proportion to the harvest, God sends his servant asking for that which rightfully belongs to God. Now, if we agree with the concept of Jesus' parable, if we agree with our Lord that God is the owner and we are here to use it for a little time and to use it responsibly, then the only issue becomes an issue of gratitude that God would let us keep so much. That he only asks 10%. That he would let us keep nine-tenths and use it to his glory. There is a little park outside Jerusalem that has a sign, Take only pictures, leave only footprints. And as I think about that sign, I think it's right on. We all come to the realization with God's help. Someday we come to the realization that ultimately all we have are our memories, our consciousness. And the only things we leave are those things we dedicate to God. The rest is dust. All of that Paul is teaching these Corinthians. And he says, you excel in everything. And now I'm calling on you to excel in this gracious work as well. And after almost five years as your pastor, I can say you excel too. You and I have shared experiences that some people can live a lifetime and never share together. We had a hurricane our first summer. We had a fire our first winter. We've had a number of things, including the unthinkable, the death of a wonderful young man whom we loved, one of our pastors. And you can't go through experiences like that, including the experience of reaching out in the worst of times 
to open the door to our future with this property. You can't go through those times without learning something about the faith and the knowledge and the earnestness of your congregation. And I'll tell you, this congregation excels. And we are poised right now. If our courage doesn't fail us, we are poised right now on the precipice of the greatest opportunities for leadership and for service God has ever given to our church. I believe that with all of my being. And because that wide door of opportunity has been opened to us, we must not flag in our zeal. When Bishop Bev Jones was here for Holy Week services, he told a story which I told the stewards last month. He told a story about a man who had always wanted a parakeet that could both sing and talk. So he went to a pet store and bought the most expensive bird in the place. The man guaranteed he could sing and talk, and he took that bird home. Well, he waited to hear him sing and talk, and nothing happened. Great disappointment, he went back to the pet store and said the bird hadn't said a word or sung a note. The man said, I don't understand it, said he never quit hearing the story, he drove me crazy singing and talking. He said, does he ring his bell? And the man said, what bell? The shop owner said, oh, he's got to have a bell, said that bell just gets him started. Uh, we'll sell you a bell, and he did. Took that bell home, the next day he came back, said, not a note, not a word. The man said, I don't understand it. Said, did he ring his bell? He said, yes. He said, did he climb his ladder? He said, ladder? What ladder? He said, every parakeet has to have a ladder. There's something about it just gets him going. So he sold him a ladder. And the next day he came back, he said he hadn't sung a note or said a word. He said, I don't understand it. Did he ring his bell? He said, yeah, he rung his bell. Climb his ladder? Yes, he climbed his ladder. Did he look in his mirror? <laughs> said, mirror? What are you talking about, a mirror? He said, every parakeet's got to have a mirror. He said, something about seeing himself in that mirror, and he thinks it's another bird, and he'll start talking. Sold him a mirror. Came back the next day, said, not a note, not a word. He said, I don't understand it. Ring his bell, climb his ladder, look in his mirror. He said, yeah. Step onto his swing. <laughs> swing, he said. Don't have any swing. He said, well, you got to have a swing. Every parakeet needs a swing. So he sold him a swing. And next day the man came back and said, well, it's all over. The shopkeeper says, what do you mean? He said, my bird's dead. <laughs> he said, what do you mean he's dead? He says, yes, that he's dead, but said... Just before he died, he said his first and last words. The shopkeeper said, what in the world were they? And he said, don't they have any bird seed at that store? <laughs> now all of those mirrors and ladders and all the swings and everything... It becomes unimportant if the basic is missing. And I'm sure that the ministry in Jerusalem was a great ministry. And I know that the ministry of this church is a great one. Name any area of need in this great city of Houston, and we have some representative 
or some support group involved in it. I challenge you, come up with any hurt, and if this church isn't responding to it directly or indirectly, it's about to respond to it. We are in it. We are immersed, given over to it for Jesus Christ's sake. But if we forget to supply it with its basic needs, it'll be an exercise in futility. They tell me, and I don't even know how these measurements work, they tell me that it takes a force of 30 foot power, a pound, uh, to get a locomotive to move uh, one ton on a level track just to get it started. It takes a force of 30 foot power. But then the same people say it only takes three to keep it moving. I'm bringing you this word not because the program has stopped, for it has not, but to alert you to the fact that we need greater support or it may stop. I'm asking you to do three things in a time of great economic difficulty. I'm asking you to prayerfully look at your commitment to see whether or not it's up to date. And if it isn't, do your very best to bring it current. And then I'm asking you to make a mid-course correction offering. Call it whatever you want to, a love offering. If your giving is current, give a little something extra, $5 or $10 or 100 or 1000 whatever you can give to correct our giving at this mid-course level. And then if your giving is current, consider 10% more for the brothers or sisters who cannot keep theirs current. And I am bold to ask that, not as some kind of command, as Paul said, but because I know the genuineness of your commitment, and I know what you want for this church. We do not have a great problem. It's my responsibility to bring it to you before it becomes a problem. We need about $25,000 more per month than we're receiving. That's all. It's very easy in a big church like ours to grow careless sometimes about our individual commitments. It's kind of like that story of the of the priest in France who was about to retire. I told it to you before. Everyone was supposed to bring a bottle of their best wine to the retirement party held in the village square. They had a great big barrel to receive it. And now and again, one of those villagers thought, with everybody bringing theirs, surely they won't need mine, so I'll just put in a little water. And on the big day when they drew the wine from the barrel, they discovered to their amazement that everyone had thought the same. Somebody else is going to do it. Mine isn't important. We have the same spirit in this church that they had in Philippi. I've seen it. Last Monday morning, someone heard this story at the administrative board meeting. Last, last Monday morning, somebody called me and said, I'm so excited about what this church is doing. 
uh, the Word of God on which it stands. I'm so excited about its programs, I want to give a $1,000 check as a love offering over and above my pledge. And then I thought as I came to the service this morning of that couple who for many years has been here at 7 o'clock. He ushers, gets the sanctuary ready. She sits there and visits with the other ladies. Except now she's a member of the church eternal. She always wore that watch he had given her. Had two diamonds on either side of the face of the watch. She died and was buried one week and the following Sunday. He was here at his post. He's here today. Except when he came that Sunday, he brought a little box with her watch in it. And she said, give that to the pastor. Get it to the church. I want my church to have it. That's the kind of spirit we have in this church. And I have every confidence that with one word from the pastor about the needs that this great church that has always responded will respond again. These great things we propose to do for God will be done to the glory of His name for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our hymn of commitment is, Take My Life and Let It Be. If there are those present who wish to join with us in the ministry of this church, give your life to Christ. I invite you to come as we stand and sing together, Take My Life and Let It Be. Thank you for coming to worship with us this morning. This is a warm and friendly church. Some of you may never have visited us. I hope before very long you'll take advantage of all of our great parking and the empty freeways. And come on down and give us an opportunity to speak to you personally. I'd like that very much. Again, thank you once more for joining us.
Dr. Henson, I am pleased to introduce to the congregation these persons who come by reaffirmation and profession of faith, Gwen Alexis Laverne Sutton, Karen Henry, John Miller, and Jeannie Crane. We're thrilled and grateful that God has led you to this life-changing moment, and I'm going to ask you if you'll take the vows, take them once more if you're rededicating your life that we have all taken. Do you repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord? Will you then, according to the grace given you, live a Christian life and follow always the admonitions of our Lord and Savior? And if you will, say, I will. Will you read and study the Holy Scriptures and diligently apply them to your life and thinking? And will you be supportive of the church and give it your prayers, your presence, your gifts, and your service, and do it with a glad and joyous spirit, grateful for the opportunity of serving Christ through his church? And if you will do that, say, I will. And I rejoice to welcome and receive you into this fellowship of Christians. And now may the God of grace, who knows when sparrows fall, and whose good pleasure it is to give you the kingdom, enable us to receive a heart of generosity in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs> 